Sander Eli Katz is the author of the books Wild Fermentation, The Flavor, Nutrition, and Craft of Live Culture Foods, and The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved. I'm Eric Klein. On today's open book, we'll hear a speech Sandor Katz gave recently in Oakland, California. He addresses the crowd gathered at SOL, sustaining ourselves locally, while standing over a table full of vegetables. In the realm of food, what we're really talking about is the transformative action of microorganisms um, that actually is much bigger than food because every compost pile is also an example of fermentation where, you know, it's the action of microorganisms that are digesting dead animal and plant matter back into more elemental forms that renews the earth. And, you know, fermentation is an important piece of the cycle of life and death is the cycle of life and death in fermentation. But fermentation also is a really powerful metaphor. And, um, you know, if you start, if you haven't already keyed into this, like you'll start noticing like people references to like, you know, cultural ferment and social ferment and political ferment and intellectual ferment and spiritual ferment. And um, the roots of all of the fermentation comes from it's a Latin word fervere that means to boil. And, uh, you know, in the realm of like, you know, fermenting liquids, it's because the visible action of fermentation is bubbling, which is exactly the same as the visible action of boiling. But then, um, you know, the human ferment, the social ferment, that's like when people are excited and people get bubbly when they're all excited. And, um, you know, that's really like an engine of social change is people being bubbly about ideas and wanting to like, you know, share those ideas and tell people about them. So um, in the realm of food, um, you know, our food system, the system of, you know, mass production, mass distribution of food uh, is really like desperately demanding subversion. And, you know, and, and the idea of one person producing enough food for 100 people, which is basically how it goes in the United States, is based upon technologies which are completely unsustainable. They're, um, you know, sort of destroying the earth. They're creating pollution. They're depleting resources. They're destroying our health. They're creating food that's of really inferior quality. And, um, you know, if we want to be able to imagine a future, we have to imagine, um, you know, changing our food system and more of us getting involved in the production of our food. And this is a small but tangible way that like anybody, no matter how tiny your apartment is, can get involved in, uh, in cultivation and in you know, becoming more integrated into your environment um, through food. And this is the one aspect of wildness which exists everywhere, no matter how de- you know, developed or intense it is, is the, just the microorganisms that are floating around in the air. And we are, we, you know, we are all existing in the context of this, like, war on bacteria. That's, like, way bigger than the war on terror or the war on, uh, on drugs. And it's sort of the undeclared war that we're all caught up in. And, um, I mean, it's just huge how much people accept the idea that, like, you know, like, germs make you sick. Bacteria are the enemy. And that's why we're seeing, like, you know, antibacterial hand cleansing products everywhere, right? Like, do you ever see a suggestion that less people... People are getting sick because everybody's washing their hands with antibacterial chemicals. Um, There there is none. I mean, really, like, you know, really it's that more people are getting sick because um, the bacteria that can be troublesome to us uh, are actually building resistance to these chemicals because we're all using them so so casually. Um, But the main way that we can protect ourselves from the potentially pathogenic bacteria is by cultivating the, the, the vast majority of bacteria that we can exist uh, perfectly peacefully with, and in fact, uh, from whom we are descended. Uh, you know, assuming that you, uh, assuming you subscribe to uh, evolutionary theory, you know, all forms of life descend from 
bacteria, and no other form of life has ever been able to sustain itself without the assistance of bacteria. We're dependent on bacteria for every aspect of our physiological function. Uh, when you count the number of cells in our body, the, the cells that reflect our unique individual DNA are outnumbered 10 to 1 by the cells which we are host to, which have some autonomous existence. So, um, you know, we really need to cultivate our relationship with, uh, with bacteria, uh, embrace bacteria as our ancestors and our allies. And, um, you know, like eating live culture foods is a really excellent way of doing this. Um, because of this war on bacteria, we're all drinking chlorinated water, the levels of antibiotic chemicals as a result of the runoff from, uh, from the way the, the livestock are pumped up with antibiotics is meaning that we're, uh, we're all ingesting low levels and rising levels of antibiotics on a daily basis. Um, this means that we need to consciously replenish these populations. That's why everyone is spending ridiculous amounts of money on probiotic uh, uh, supplements. But anything you can get in a little capsule form, you can get better from food. Um, so, you know, like eat live culture foods. They're expensive to buy. They're, it's hard to find foods with the live cultures intact. Most of what's in the supermarket is pasteurized, which is lovely for commerce, but not so lovely for our health. Um, you know, ferment like all fermented foods. You know, they, they, the, the 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 food is pre-digested. The nutrients are more available. The minerals in the food are dramatically more available. Um, complex compound nutrients are broken down into forms which our bodies can assimilate. They have higher levels of B vitamins. They have unique micronutrients which are not found in foods that are not fermented. And um, you know, although I really hesitate to like make any specific miracle claims on behalf of specific foods, um, you know, eating live culture foods will make your digestion and nutrient assimilation better, um, and they will also sort of enhance your overall immunity to potentially pathogenic bacteria. The name of the book is Wild Fermentation. So this is not an expression that I made up. This is an expression that's used throughout the literature, and it refers to um, fermenting food with organisms that are spontaneously present, either you know just on the vegetables themselves or, or the other foods themselves or from the air. The contrasting style of fermentation... Hey, can I... Can I oh. Did everyone hear that sound? Okay. So, okay, bubbles, fermentations about bubbles, and um, carbon dioxide. These all involve respiration and the production of carbon dioxide. I really just sealed this in, let's say, at like 1 o'clock this afternoon. And so, you know, that's like six hours of accumulated pressure. Um, can I borrow one of those spoons sitting on that table? Because I just want to, just to talk about... Um, uh, the contrasting style of fermentation, you know, wild fermentation, all the ferments start as wild fermentation somewhere, but then when people have results that they like, they, um, they try to... Um, they try to perpetuate them, and that's what cultured foods are, are, you know, foods where specific cultures, you know, um, communities of microorganisms that have already sort of successfully shown themselves to be, um, you know, delicious and especially wonderful in some way are perpetuated. So, like, you know, every culture that domesticated animals for milk soured their milk because if you, if you don't have a 38-degree box, that's what happens to the milk. And, you know, milk all, you know, contains bacteria that sour it in a fairly predictable way that protects it from the pathogenic things. 
things. And um, actually, right now in California, there's a crazy battle going on over raw milk. California is the state in which raw milk is most accessible. Uh, the, the retailing of it is allowed for and regulated, unlike most of the states. But um, you know, basically, like a like a, a backroom political de- deal uh, is threatening that. And some folks here have some flyers. Okay, great. Why don't you just pass those around, and people who are interested can can take a flyer. And it's a you know sort of uh, you know action to save raw milk in California. But raw milk has this amazing built-in protective mechanism, and. Um, this guy, Mark McAfee in Fresno, who has a, a dairy called Organic uh, Pastures, and he's the largest uh, sort of uh, legitimate raw dairy in the United States. And because of that, he's under a fair amount of scrutiny because raw milk is always presumed to be the vector of contagion whenever there's any kind of, um, you know, sort of uh, contamination outbreak in food. But anyway, he does this like fascinating thing where he has obtained vials of all of the most um, uh, notorious food poisoning pathogens. So he's got like a little vial of E. coli 0157 and a little e, uh, vial of listeria and a little vial of salmonella. And every two weeks he inoculates samples of his work with these pathogens. And then he also inoculates samples of um, commercial milk with the same pathogens and send them, sends them to a lab. The commercial milk is a microbial blank slate. Whatever you put into it, uh, if it's a bacteria, it will replicate. So, so lots of E. coli 0157, lots of listeria, lots of salmonella. In the raw milk, which has a, 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 a rich native population of acidifying bacteria, you put in a little bit of the contaminants, and they can't establish a foothold. They're outcompeted by the native bacteria, and the native bacteria are creating acids which destroy the bacteria that you put in in the first place. So they never can find any evidence of the of, of the pathogens. So um, so it's got this like built-in protective uh, mechanism. But anyway, if you have raw milk, you just leave it on your counter, and it will sour. And in the right temperature ranges, it'll turn into something really delicious. But when people like have an especially delicious experience, they want want to replicate it. And that's what yogurt is. And that's what kefir is. So yogurt, you just take a scoop of yesterday's yogurt and, and add that into tomorrow's yogurt. And yogurt is a specific community that includes not only lactobacillus, if you've heard of this, acidophilus, that's lactobacillus. Um, but yogurt also contains a, a, sec, a second bacteria, which is what coagulates it. And that's called um, S-thermophilus is what they always say on the containers, but they don't like to tell you what S stands for because it stands for streptococcus. So it's streptococcus thermophilus. So that's a specific community of organisms that like people like the texture of it and they perpetuate it one scoop into the, into the next batch to get the streptococcus thermophilus to grow. You have to do it at an elevated temperature, 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Kefir, you don't need to like mess with the temperature. It's way, way easier. And it's these little blobs, okay? These blobs are an example. I'm going to just pass this around. Anyone who wants can look at it. Please don't eat it. Um, so it's, um, it's an example of what in the literature is called a SCOBY, a symbiotic community of bacteria and yeast. And that is not like two organisms. That's 30 distinct organisms. It's a hugely um, complex symbiosis. 
They coordinate their reproduction. They spin a skin together, which they share. Um, you know, it's really, it's profound. If you want to read about it, Lynn Margulis, who's a really important biologist, has written a great essay called From Kefir to Death to illustrate how bacteria um, fuse together and that that's the engine of, of, um, of, 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 of evolution, is the symbiosis among uh, bacteria to create more complex functional cell units. Um, so anyway, 30 distinct microorganisms, but it's really 32 because you need a lactating ruminant animal, right? So you need to have a cow or a goat. Otherwise, this fusion doesn't have nourishment if it doesn't have milk. And the cow or the goat is not going to put the little blob into the milk. So the 32nd 30 30 organism is the human beings who sort of make this happen and perpetuate the tradition. And um, food cultures are, are really central to human cultures. And like, you know, if you look at like, you know, the immigrant experience like that's what people bring across the ocean with them is their food cultures which they want to perpetuate and then another food culture that I like to play with is a Finnish food culture called vilai and it makes this viscous kind of gluey milk and it's and it's lovely but I have a little story that this um, uh, the woman who I get it from Betty Stetchmeyer in Fort Bragg her husband's uncle brought it over to from Finland and, you know, she was recounting to me this old man on his deathbed in his 90s and like the thing that he needed reassurance about to sort of like close his eyes and go gently into the night was he needed to know that they were going to take care of his Vilai culture. And that was like the most important thing to him. So isn't it interesting that we use the same word culture to talk about these like little, you know, communities of bacteria that create delicious food for us. And that we also use to describe, you know, like language and literature and music and, and, and uh, you know, the totality of all that it is to be human. So, um, you know, cultured foods, um, you know, appear to be part of every culinary tradition. They're, you know, they evolved with agriculture. Agriculture makes no sense unless you have techniques for preserving the harvest. So, you know, the big debate about the Fertile Crescent in Iraq where barley and wheat uh, uh, agriculture emerged is did people settle from their, you know, relatively satisfying existence in a migratory lifestyle into like a settled pattern of agriculture for bread or for beer? So, um, you know, that they have conferences about that and, um, you know, they're never going to come up with an answer for that. But, um, you know, it doesn't really matter. Like they're but like they're first of all, linguistically, they're almost the same. And this, the, the oldest recipes, the Sumerian tablets that have recipes for beer and bread, the beer recipe refers to bread and the bread recipe refers to beer. And they are they are really like a co-evolution. And, you know, it seems like. In every case, you know, agriculture emerged alongside um, techniques for fermenting because it doesn't make any sense unless you have some way to preserve the harvest. Um, there's all these nutritional benefits. You know, preservation is obviously the, you know, real motivation historically for, for, for people to ferment their food. Let's not forget about flavor. Like, if you walk into a gourmet food market, like, every food that people consider to be gourmet food is the product of fermentation. Um, you know, somewhere here tonight, I was talking to a chocolate maker. Like, someone last week in Berkeley gifted me with a cacao pod that someone had sent them. Um, and, uh, you know, I... 
I knew that the cacao is um, fermented, and it's typically on the, um, on, on, you know, on the, uh, you know, in the tropics where it's grown is where it's fermented. You know, as soon as the the seeds are taken out of the pod, and like last night, this thing was sort of rotting from the outside, and I decided I better like open this thing up and taste it before before it just completely disappears. And um, the cacao beans are like you could taste the texture of, of of chocolate. It was really like smooth, but it was intensely bitter. Like you could taste the chocolate underneath it but there's all this bitterness and it does you can't have chocolate without fermentation chocolate is what fermentation is what sort of removes the bitterness and 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 turns the taste into what we love as chocolate coffee is fermented um, not all tea is fermented but poo air which is a variety of tea is fermented bread is fermented cheese is fermented um, you know pastrami's uh, well pastrami too but um, um, uh, like salamis and pepperonis and all sorts of meats are fermented um, you know we can't forget that all alcoholic beverages mm-hmm. are fermented um, you know uh, uh, mead beer wine um, so you know what else oh condiments hello we love condiments um, <laughs> So the word ketchup derives from a Chinese word for the mother of all condiments, which is fish sauce. Um, you know, the word ketchup is a Chinese word for fish sauce. Um, <laughs> ketchup is based on vinegar. Vinegar is fermented from alcoholic beverages, vin agra, sour wine. Um, so, you know, you don't have ketchup without fermentation. You don't have mustard without fermentation, horseradish sauce, salad dressing. Um, you know, so like all of the... You know, all, all of these like gourmet foods, whatever that means, are are the products of fermentation. Um, okay, I, I, you know, you can ferment any kind of food, um, and as far as I can tell, every culinary tradition has uh, you know some style or other of fermentation. I would definitely recommend that like if you're going to start in one place with fermentation, start with vegetables. Like fermented vegetables are pretty much foolproof. They're incredibly um, healthy for you and, and, and wonderful to eat. Um, I mean, kombucha is wonderful. I love kombucha, but it's like really counterintuitive to me that if you're going to do like one fermented live culture food as a health practice, like it doesn't need to be like black tea and white sugar. I mean, that, that, that's lovely. Um, you know, def- definitely enjoy that. But like this is really like, you know, easier and, um, you know, and really just more wholesome and, and wonderful. So not, not that we need to compare them to each other and eat lots of different ferments. Um, but I just want to, so, okay. I bet I'm not the only one who's ever like had a head of cabbage. Like I used, you know, two thirds of it in whatever dish I was making. I had the other piece left. You know, my fridge was too crowded. I didn't have anywhere in the fridge, so it just like sat in my pantry, okay? And after like a few days, it starts to get like a dark mold on it. It's, this is actually my favorite teaching tool is actually to have uh, like, a, like a moldy head of cabbage. But, um, but what will happen on cabbage and other vegetables, if they're like at room temperature exposed to oxygen, is they grow like dark molds on them. And if you went away on a really long trip, um, those little dark molds could actually reduce a head of cabbage into a little puddle of slime. And that little puddle of slime bears no resemblance whatsoever to, you know, crunchy, tangy, sauerkraut. So what's the difference? So what all of the fermentation, um, what all the fermentation processes are, are like really simple manipulations 
of conditions to encourage the growth of some type of microorganism rather than some other type of microorganism. Because there's always, microorganisms are never like singular. You never have like a, a space where there's just like saccharomyces, sugar fungus, yeast. Like that's never found alone in the world except under sort of conditions of extreme human manipulation. Um, you know, every head of cabbage is home to, uh, you know, spores of molds and, you know, many different species of bacteria. And for that matter, botulism. Botulism exists on every head of cabbage. It's just, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And yet um, botulism takes a totally specific uh, um, environment to grow. You basically have to like can this, heat treat it, kill every bacteria that's there except for the spores of botulism which have the highest heat tolerance and then you leave it in a vacuum where it's totally anaerobic and then the botulism could grow. But unless you go to all of that trouble to kill every other type of bacteria that's there, like you can't get the botulism to take over a head of cabbage. Um, so when it's exposed to air, the molds always have the upper hand, like the oxygen makes the molds grow. And so a head of cabbage left exposed to the air, the molds are what's going to grow. It's really, it's very predictable. If you get the cabbage submerged under liquid, then um, you avoid the molds and you get um, acidifying bacteria growing, okay? So that's like this. So um, what, we, what we do to get the liquid is we use salt to pull the water out of the vegetables. You don't have to use salt. Some people have the idea, because these things are typically eaten salty, a lot of people have the idea that somehow the salt is the uh, vehicle of culturing. The salt is not the vehicle of culturing. The vegetables are pre-cultured. You could just... Um, um, you could just, you know, pound the cabbage, uh, you know, get its juices to come out and stuff that in a jar and you could ferment it and it would become acidic. The salt pulls water out of the vegetables through osmosis. The salt also makes the vegetables crunchier. All vegetables contain compounds called pectins that we're more used to thinking about in apples. Um, but salt hardens pectins, so it makes the vegetables crunchier. Salt also um, narrows the range of what kinds of bacteria can grow because some of the bacteria that are present on the vegetables um, um, are not tolerant of salt, but the acidifying bacteria are. So it ends up giving the acidifying bacteria um, kind of a competitive advantage. And then salt is also a preservative in its own, in, in its own right. So... Um, uh, so this will just last longer and it can sour longer and, 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 and achieve, uh, you know, tangier flavors by virtue of the presence of, of, of salt. Uh, you know, amount of salt. I mean, you could find recipes that tell you like crazy different ideas. It's really like not unlike any other recipe. Like if you look in the joy of cooking for like a... Uh, a stew, it's not going to tell you exactly how much salt you need to use. It trusts you to use your judgment. And it says salt to taste. And, you know, this is no different. I mean, there's some dynamics with salt. You know, more salt means the whole thing goes a little bit slower. Um, less salt means the whole thing goes a little bit faster. But um, you can do it at whatever level of salt you want. Um, you know, salt inhibits molds a little bit, so you have a greater likelihood of surface molds, which are not such a big deal if you, uh, if you use less salt. But, um, you know, some people like the flavor of it better with less salt, so you should make it the way, uh, the way you like it. Um, so, uh, okay, salt. Another thing I just want to say about salt is, like, not all salt is the same. And, um, you know, 
salt is really cheap in a supermarket, right? It's like, I don't know, 20-something cents a pound. And one of the reasons why salt is so cheap is that, or the reason why salt is so cheap, is that the, the profits in this industry are not really from selling the salt in the supermarket. That's like a little icing on the cake. But they strip the minerals that are present in salt out of the salt, and they sell those to the vitamin supplementation industry and the animal feed industry. And that's where the money comes from. And then, like, the sodium chloride that they're left with is just like this industrial byproduct that they sell to people in the supermarket to use as their salt. Uh, and then people buy, you know, mineral supplements instead so they can get their minerals. So, um, so I mean, like, the, the lactobacillus are not particularly choosy. Like, they will do their thing if you use, um, you know, iodized table salt with, um, with uh, aluminum compounds for anti-caking. They don't really care that much. But, you know, for a broader set of reasons, you might think about using less refined kinds of salt that have a little bit of color, a little bit of pink color, a little bit of gray color, but that's indicative of a broader range of minerals. Um, salt to taste. Um, and then, okay, then there's this whole, like, pounding thing, okay? Um, like, when you do this on a large scale in a barrel, sometimes people have a big tamping tool. Uh, this farmer I know in Vermont, he just, like, cuts down maple saplings, like, you know, five or six-inch maple saplings, and, like, and tamps it like that. And then um, I bet some of you knew Honza. Does anyone here, did, was anyone here a friend of Honza? Okay, so, so this um, Czech friend of ours, Honza, who died last year, um, Honza told me stories that his grandmother, when she was a little girl in the Czech Republic, they would just scrub the kids' feet and put the kids in the barrel with the, with the cabbage and let the kids jump up and down to, 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 to tamp down the cabbage. And then I just, a few weeks ago, somebody told me that there's a, um, there's a Dutch proverb that translates essentially to, you know, whoever has the cleanest wooden shoes stomps on the sauerkraut. Um, so... So what that accomplishes is, like, I mean, I, people might have noticed, like, I was sitting here at the beginning, like, just going like this. And this does exactly the same thing. Like, you, just by squeezing or pounding um, or, you know, any form of, like, physical maceration, you are breaking down cell walls. Cells hold water. And we want the water to be released so we can get the vegetables submerged under the water that's within them. So, you know, any kind of pounding or squeezing will um, work towards that aim. So, so then once you have it, you want to use uh, either ceramic or glass. Um, stay away from using metal unless you have like industrial quality stainless steel because household stainless steel is all just like coated with a thin coating of stainless. And anywhere where it's scratched, the salts and the acids which develop over time in the presence of the salt can corrode metal. So stay away from metal, glass, ceramic. Uh, you know, if you're in a pinch, you could use plastic, but... Um, you know, I think it's better to not, you know, age acidic foods in, uh, in, in plastic because all sorts of um, unsavory chemicals leach from the plastic. And then you just stuff it in a jar. Um, and then the thing is you just need to uh, create a way to uh, keep it submerged under liquid. When I'm at home, I use these, like, lovely big um, cylindrical-shaped ceramic crocs. Um, I know that at Rainbow in San Francisco, they sell ceramic crocs. You can also, like... Um, at uh, thrift stores, there's like these, uh, you know, plug-in crock pots that everyone got in the 70s, and one by one, people are putting them in thrift stores. So like the, the, those have ceramic inserts that hold about a half a gallon. That works really nicely. So, okay, I want to get to the, like, $64,000 question of fermentation, which is how long do you ferment it for, and how do you know when it's done? And... Um, 
When it tastes good, yeah, that's a, that's that's a great answer. Um, there's you know there's some there's some like contemporary a lot of the contemporary literature will say three days because they just figure well people are impatient and used to immediate gratification. So like definitely after three days you have a food that's beginning to be transformed. Um, then there's books that tell you three weeks. Like if you buy a harsh crock, which is this like cleverly engineered crock from Germany to avoid surface molding, but the catch is you can't open it because anytime you open it, you let oxygen in. So you just have to decide upon an arbitrary date and the directions that come with the crock say three weeks. So, you know, three days, something say, and three weeks, something say. But, you know, if you look into more historical sources, the assumption was this is something you're putting up in the autumn at harvest time that's going to nourish you through the whole week winter. So they're assuming more like three months you're going to ferment it for. And then the same farmer who cuts down the maple saplings and, um, and is pounding the sauerkraut with them, he disappeared into his um, root cellar in northern Vermont and he emerged with this kimchi that had been down there fermenting for three years. So three days, three weeks, three months, three years. Like what is the answer? Really what makes a difference is like what flavor you're after, what texture you're after, what temperature you're in to some degree. Like when I make sauerkraut in Tennessee in the middle of the summer and it's 95 degrees outside at, at, during the day and, um, you know, 80 degrees at night, it goes through its process a lot faster than it does if I put it up at this time of year and, you know, put it in a cellar that's 55 degrees. So, um, you know, uh, uh, temperature has a lot to do with it, but, but more than anything, it has to do with um, you know, what you're after. Your memory. Your, your memory and just like your desires. Like some people like it, um, some people like it, uh, you know, crunchy and mild. Some people like it sour and soft. Um, over time, it will become more sour. Um, you know, all the ferments exist along a spectrum. And, uh, you know, it can stay crunchy for a long time, but, like, eventually the textures will get soft. It could actually take, it could take, like, you know, many, many months for the textures to get soft. Um, I personally prefer it with the textures, um, you know, nice and crunchy, but uh, everyone's different. Sander Eli Katz is the author of the books Wild Fermentation, The Flavor, Nutrition, and Craft of Live Culture Foods, and The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved. You can find them online at wildfermentation.com. This was Open Book, Friday's cover to cover. I'm Eric Klein. Thanks for listening.